everyone. You are listening to The Wellness Project, powered by Spotlight Coalition. I'm your host, Des, and this is episode number 98. With the overturning of Roe versus Wade, I felt that I needed to do something. And something that I could do is interview women that have had an abortion and want to share their stories just to humanize the experience, to educate on abortion, and to share these very individual stories. Today, I speak with Kate Carson, who had what we call a late-term abortion. In 2012, Kate's baby was diagnosed with severe brain anomalies. Because the brain is the last organ to develop, the problems weren't discovered until she was 35 weeks pregnant. Even though she lived in a state known for its liberal policies, she still had to travel across the country to access the late-term abortion care that she needed. Since then, she's been leading a support group for women who end wanted pregnancies for medical reasons. Her story of urgent travel was once rare, but is now sadly very common. Even though her loss happened a decade ago, it's so relevant to what women are facing all over the United States today. Abortion is complicated and each story is an individual one. So I'm really happy to have on Kate here today to share her experience with her abortion and whether you are pro-choice or anti-choice. I think it's really important to listen to Kate's story today because I think in general, as a society, we really lack the education around abortion, around miscarriages, and around reproductive health care. And I think we could all use a lot more education in these areas. Unfortunately, this is something that we do not teach about in schools. So where are we learning this information? What better way to learn than from each other's stories? So help me welcome Kate. Kate, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you today about a very sensitive and current topic in our society right now. So I would love for you to share your story with our listeners today. Absolutely. My name is Kate and I am from... Massachusetts. And 10 years ago, this happened a little while ago, 10 years ago, uh, I was in family building mode. I had a two-year-old daughter and my husband and I had been trying to get pregnant with another baby. It was proving a little harder than we had expected. I had three miscarriages in a row. I finally got pregnant with a, a baby, they call it a sticky baby, you know, a baby that stuck, a pregnancy that continued, that didn't miscarry. As it progressed, you know, it was a, a fairly difficult pregnancy, especially compared to my first. And perhaps because I had had three miscarriages in a row, I just felt very on edge. I felt like something wasn't right the entire time I was pregnant. As the pregnancy continued, at first I would just treat myself like I was anxious. And I would talk to my doctor and my midwife would be like, well, I'm like having anxiety about this pregnancy. And I think that really framed the way everyone treated me as well. But as time went on, I began to actually be able to point to things in the pregnancy that seemed wrong. They would always sort of laugh it off and be like, no, everything looks fine. Everything looks good. So we continued and we continued. And then I was still so anxious and I was preparing for a birth at a birth center. I was preparing to try to give birth without medication. And my midwife said, you know, you're still so anxious. I can't send you in to have a birth this way. (laughs) 
So she agreed to order me an ultrasound to have a look at the baby. Now, I did not get into that ultrasound until I was 35 weeks pregnant. And I went by myself because the whole point in my mind <laughs> was that this was a peace of mind ultrasound. I was going to go in, I was going to get to see my baby one last time before birth. You know, birth is typically expected at around 40 weeks from last menstrual period. And I was only five weeks from then. So I went by myself and the technician, first it's just the ultrasound technician. She took a long time and I was very chatty and she was not. And then right before she left, I said something about you know, it's just hard for me to wrap my head around there being like a whole different person inside of me than the daughter I've already had. Like part of me just wants to believe that all babies are the same and it's just going to be a repeat of what it was before. I was just jabbering and she looks me square in the eye and she said, this one's different. And I sort of froze and she said, they're all different. And she sort of shook it off and left. And then two doctors came in and they explained to me that my baby had, her brain had not developed properly. She had several malformations in her brain. They were significant. And none of what they were saying was really getting through to me. I just kept thinking to myself, it's going to be okay. We just need more testing and it's going to be okay. Like people deal with <laughs> problems all the time and we're going to deal with this. It's going to be okay. And the only thing that really got through that block of, of self-protection of denial was when the doctor said, we can offer you adoption. We may be able to offer you abortion, but we just don't know. And I just like came up short and I said, I looked down at my belly. It really, part of me was like, they have the wrong room. They have the wrong room. I want this baby. I've tried so hard for this baby. Also look at me you know, I'm eight months pregnant. And I looked at her and I said, they have abortions for women like me. And she said, we used to send women to Kansas, but we can't anymore. And I knew, I knew there was a memory somewhere in the back of my brain of this headline of an abortion provider, Dr. Tiller being shot at a church point blank when he was handing out orders of service. And I just knew that I was entering a world in which people might want to shoot me too depending on what choices I made. No one was going to give me a prognosis for my baby until we got an MRI. And that took two days. But by the time we got the MRI, the prognosis was very poor. On the most functioning end, like she still wasn't ever expected to, to walk or talk or hold up the weight of her head or swallow. So like maybe maybe she would be able to communicate non-verbally a little bit or learn like a couple of words in her whole life. Maybe she would be able to support her weight for 10 minutes a day. You know, like those would have been the most abled end of her spectrum. And I remember listening to my doctor describe this, the neurologist, and wanting to know like all the things she couldn't do, what will she be able to do? Will she just sleep all day? And I asked him that, I said, will she just sleep all day? And he winced and he said, babies like your baby are not often comfortable enough to sleep. She was going to have seizure disorders. She would have seized, uh, she would have had a lot of muscle spasms, which can be quite painful. She would have required brain surgeries, possibly several, but none of them ever would have made her better. They just would have kept her from getting worse faster. He said, this will shorten her life expectancy. I mean, you need to know that she might die before she 
is born, like the birth might be too much for her. She may or may not be able to coordinate her heartbeat outside of the womb, her breathing outside of the womb. And I just remember when they told me she wouldn't swallow, I said, this is very sad, but now I know how my baby's gonna die. We don't want resuscitation. We do not want a feeding tube. I was basically asking for birth to hospice. They didn't give me an answer in that moment and they rallied. They must have like met with an ethicist or something, which I, I'm sorry, I have a hard time with the profession of medical ethics because I, I don't feel like I've been treated very well by them. But in any case, when the, when the verdict was returned to me, they said, oh no, you can't deny your baby a feeding tube. You can't deny a baby a feeding tube. And if you want to enforce a DNR, you have to be physically present to stop resuscitation efforts, which was just like, what? I mean, it didn't make any sense to me. Obviously, I wanted my baby. Like, obviously, I'm her mother. I wanted her in every way. But if she wasn't going to live, I really didn't want her death to be extended in an excruciating way by modern medicine, which is how I saw it could have gone down. Not necessarily would have, but it could have. And because those, I do have like values that respect death, even though it's hard and sad. I ended up asking about abortion and my doctor called me. It was, I remember it was late. <laughs> it was in the evening. It must've been like 6.30, 6.30 on a Friday. She called me and my husband and I were walking. I had my cell phone and I picked up and she said, if you want the abortion, I'm so sorry, but I have to talk fast. You have to call within the next half hour before it's the end of the work week, mountain time. And I remember thinking in my head, mountain time? I live in Boston. I live in this medical Mecca, like the hub of the universe, mountain time. But of course, I didn't want to provide any friction. So I just said, yes, of course. And I took the number and I hung up the phone and I called the clinic. And again, they apologized. They said, we're so sorry. But if you want this abortion, you have to be on an airplane on Monday. You have to show up on Tuesday morning with $25,000 to pay up front. It's a four-day procedure. You need to stay in a hotel locally to us the whole week and come in every day for your procedure. And I did not have $25,000. This was at a stage of my life where I had just finished grad school. My entire grad school student stipend had been $25,000 just by coincidence before taxes. I just didn't have that kind of money sitting around, but I didn't want friction. I didn't know about abortion funds. I just said, okay, we'll be there. And I thought we will figure this out. So I booked the appointment and I called my parents and I asked my parents for the money to get this abortion. My dad ended up taking it out of his retirement account early in order to pay. They raised the limit on their credit card just to get them through the week and then to be able to pay that off. They took money out of retirement early. So my husband and I, well, of course we have a daughter, we're parents. We put her into the care of her grandparents so that we could go. She, she went to stay with her grandparents, my parents. And my husband and I took a plane on that Monday. We showed up Tuesday morning at the clinic. My parents paid the $25,000 and it was a four day procedure. The first day, there's a lot of patient education. And for me, like going into this, I didn't actually technically know if it was legal. <laughs> I wasn't going to ask that either. I was so worried that if I asked the wrong question, someone would tell me I couldn't do this. And I knew I had no time. I had no time. And so 
when I got there, part of the patient education is this is legal. This is safe. It's a lot safer than having this baby at full term in a hospital. At my dates, of course, it was less safe than earlier abortion, but it was still an order of magnitude safer, less morbidity, less mortality for this procedure than an order of magnitude like a tenth ish. I think it was a ninth the rates of complication as regular birth. So after all of that, which was a huge relief to me, actually, I signed the consent with my doctor, Dr. Warren Hearn of Boulder Abortion Clinic. He was my witness. He led me into the room for the injection. The first day it's fetal injection and they injected my baby's heart with a chemical that slows it and then stops it. And that was just excruciating. because I love my baby so much. We had named her Laurel already. We named her well, she, in those days of flying and of figuring this out. We just wanted to name her for a wildflower, just something, something that bloomed in June, which is when we were going to the clinic. And I went back to the hotel and my husband got us some food and he just lay with me until she stopped moving. You know, that is still the hardest thing I've ever done by far. Um, the next two days are laminaria placement and dilation. So they slowly dilate the cervix. It's just two 10-minute appointments, one on the second day, one on the third day. You know, it hurts. It's not my favorite thing, but it's a few minutes of my life. And I had good nursing support. Those nurses were like angels. And I knew my doctor was looking out for my safety. And that meant a ton to me. And then on the final day, I came in for a labor and delivery. So they induced me. And I walked in already dilated four centimeters because of the laminaria so that when they induced me, it went pretty quickly. I labored for about two and a half hours and then I delivered my baby vaginally. And it was, it was more like, you know, quote unquote, a natural birth. It was more like that than my birth of my living daughter had been because that was a medicated birth. So I, there was a lot I didn't feel and a lot I had to be coached on that I had no biofeedback on, but this, like I felt everything. Some people think that's horrifying that I didn't get a lot of pain relief, but to me, it was actually for the physical sensations of the body to come up and match the emotional experience that I was having was, it was healing. It was deeply healing to have that be the case in that moment and to feel, feel like there is nothing I can do for my Laurel, but I can deliver her from my body. That's the one thing I can do for you, babe, you know? After the birth, Dr. Hearn brought her body to me. I had asked to see her. And when I held her little body, she looked like her sister because her malformations were all on the inside. She otherwise looked very beautiful. My husband will say that she had sort of a smaller head and that's probably true, but to me, she just looked beautiful. She just looked like my baby. But the thing I knew more than anything in that moment was like, she's not here. this isn't my baby, this is my baby's body. That was my truth in that moment. And so I was able to let her go. In that moment, in that day, it was profound, it was beautiful. There was a lot of relief. The next day, the next morning, less than 24 hours after giving birth, I got on a plane and I flew 2000 miles back home. And that boggles my mind. That is not best care. <laughs> You know, after my daughter, my first daughter, Elsie was born, I had a hemorrhage within a few hours of giving birth to her. And I just think like, what if that had happened on the airplane or like blood clots? You know, it's, I, I don't love, I don't love that I had to do that. My doctor didn't love it either, <laughs> but I hadn't known we made this in such a hurry. I hadn't thought 
about that. I hadn't known it was a birth. I knew it was an abortion. I didn't think an abortion could be a birth, but it, it can be. I, I think all abortion is a birth. It's a delivery in a way, no matter which way it's done. I just like hadn't thought about it. So we traveled back home and I, I was okay. I was, this is of the three births I've had. This is the one I bounced back from the fastest. This is the one my body healed from the easiest. And I think it's in part because it was so closely, carefully managed. Everything was done slowly on purpose for the least trauma on the body. But it's certainly the one that's left me with the most emotional scars by far. I came home and it was actually that weekend. It was my 30th birthday. And my mom called and she said, of course, we'll cancel your party. (laughs) And I said, you know what? Don't have my party. I knew that it was just the closest of friends. My best friend in particular kept trying to drop food off at my house while I was in Colorado. She didn't know I hadn't told anybody but my parents. I knew she needed to hold me. And I knew that it was time to let myself be held by my friend. And I didn't feel like I could tell her what had happened. I didn't feel like I could tell anyone what had happened. But that's why I had my birthday party because it was just her and her family. And I knew that at a time like that, to let myself be held was a valuable thing. You know, in the subsequent years, our two-year-old is now 12 (laughs) and I've had another baby. She is now eight. That in and of itself, I think a lot of people always want to put that as the happy ending on this story, but to me, it's just a new story. It's a very beautiful, happy story. The one of my, they call it rainbow baby, you know, the rainbow after the storm. I, I find Lucia's birth to be a beautiful story all its own, and it's a very happy one, but certainly it's not an ending <laughs> on Laurel's lost story. And I'm still, you know, I'm still living that story too. I'm still living the bereaved mother story as well as living the like beautiful life with two healthy children's story. In the meantime, I've done a lot of uh, volunteer work. So I joined a support group called Ending a Wanted Pregnancy. And I pretty quickly became a moderator in that space. And now I'm one of the admins, uh, one of the leaders of that space for almost the decade that I've been a lost mom. And I also have changed my profession so that um, I'm a somatic coach. I specialize in supporting baby lost parents. So I've found a lot of meaning in it, but it's still a sad story and it just gets to be a sad story. Oh, well, Kate, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. It's so emotional. I was getting choked up while you were speaking. And I think it's so important to talk about and just educating on abortion too, because I just feel like so many people don't know what it is and the importance of it. And obviously there's all these stereotypes and misunderstanding and all this, you know, judgment placed on people that have an abortion and there's no real understanding of the stories behind it. So I really thank you for coming on and sharing your story. I think it's just so important for people to to hear, to understand. And just with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, people like you were in that situation aren't going to be able to get the care that they need. And that's, it's not okay. And it's, it's just, I, I don't have words for it, honestly. So it's- Yeah, it's one of these situations where in the days between finding out something was wrong and getting the MRI, and figuring out what my options were. So there was like 48 hours where I knew something was wrong and it could be really bad. And I had no idea what my ways out were. 
right? Mm-hmm. In that time, I remember just like, I didn't sleep. I didn't eat. I just remember sitting on the couch in the middle of the night, like crying until I cried myself out and then like ruminating and then crying some more. And one of the things I would, well, I would ruminate on all of the things. It could go this way. She, we could have a wonderful life with a disabled medically complex child and it could be like transcendent and awesome. But also that would be really hard. And that, how well would I sleep? Would I be able to do the things that help me take care of myself, right? So that would be like the happy end of the spectrum. But then there was like the dire end of the spectrum where she would get stuck in a loop of resuscitation that I thought was way too much and not okay. And then I wouldn't be able to stop it. Then there was the, what if they offer me an unsafe provider? I would still go. You know, that there was the, what if I have no options except for that horrible hospitalized one? Maybe I would just go have her in the middle of nowhere, very far away from a hospital, which I knew was dangerous. You know, that that's dangerous anyway, but this was not even a healthy birth. Like as soon as she had this diagnosis, it was a high risk birth immediately. Um, her head, you know, she was going to get hydrocephalus and no one would know if it was before birth or after birth, but that could have made delivery impossible. You know, I, I really could have died and I could have died of my desperation. And unfortunately, what the overturning of Roe v. Wade has done has made a lot more desperation, which is a very dangerous situation. When I think about, like you mentioned, the stereotypes of abortion, one of the things about my story is that it really disrupts those stereotypes, in part because most abortions are because the pregnancy itself is untenable in the woman's life for whatever reason. Like, I cannot be pregnant right now is the most frequent reason for getting an abortion. It's a very good reason. But my story, of course, is desperately wanting to be pregnant. And then what's untenable about the pregnancy is this plot twist later on. Either way, whether it's the pregnancy itself that's untenable or the health situation of the baby or the health situation of the mother or whatever, the desperation is there, right? If you can't be pregnant, you can't be pregnant, whether you know it early on or like you get a curveball right late in the game. We all are driven by the same animal instincts to survive the crisis. And that really puts us into danger. And the fewer clinics are open. I I struggle a lot because a lot of my friends living in Massachusetts, even though they know me, even though they know my story, are like, well, thank God I live in Massachusetts. And like, yeah. I'm proud of my state in most ways for its abortion policy, but first of all, we're not perfect. I still had to leave. Sometimes even when things are legal, the hospitals won't provide it. (laughs) And then second of all, don't they understand that we're all in this together and that as half of the country's clinics close down, we create more abortion refugees like me who have to flee to other states. How is that not going to affect you or your daughters? if you need healthcare in your home state. Of course it will affect you. My clinic, I don't know the exact number of weeks right now, but I believe they're booking out four to eight weeks. That would not have been possible for my situation. Mine had an urgent need. I don't know what I would have done if they had said, I mean, I don't think they would have treated me four weeks later when it would have been like, a toss up of whether it went into labor naturally. No one wants that situation. I don't know if they would have squeezed me in out of pity, but I mean, I'm not the most, everyone has a, a necessary story. I'm not like the most in that way. 
I think I just wouldn't have had my abortion. And I would have got between this rock and this hard place of, if I live my conscience, will social services come and take my living child away from me? If I try to have this baby not in the hospital, will they deem me an unfit mother because they legally won't let me deny her a feeding tube? It was just so scary and so awful. And it is such an effective way to persecute women and families. It's a real mess we're in. It is. And that's the thing, like women are going to die and you were lucky. You definitely could have died. I mean, that could have been life-threatening and we're already hearing stories of women that are dying or in hospitals. We're already hearing those stories and a lot more women are going to die because of this limited access. And like you said, you were in Massachusetts, you still had to travel to Colorado and that was 10 years ago. And something that you said that really struck me, it really stood out to me. You said, that as soon as you had decided to have the abortion, you were entering a world in which people would want to shoot you. And that's already, you're already dealing with so much grief, so much trauma, probably one of the worst, most difficult decisions of your life. And then you have people that are just judging that decision and may put you in even further danger. And at that time, this family decision, you know, you spoke with your husband and your parents and you don't need those outside judgments or shame. It's, it's stressful enough, right? The decision is already stressful and difficult enough than to have to even consider people you don't even know placing judgments and shame on you. Absolutely. And I'll say for me, I talk about it as crisis consciousness between the diagnosis and getting on that flight to come home. I was in crisis consciousness. Everything fell away. I didn't care who thought what about me. I just had to save my life, life or death decisions. I chose death for my daughter, which was extremely hard, but it was life for myself. Right. And I had to see it through to the other side. And then as soon as I, you're at the other side and it's done um, as a space holder, as, as a support group leader, I see this all the time. It's not just me. There's this sense of like huge relief, like, okay, thank God. Thank God. I lived by my values. I did the best I could in this situation. There's a sense of like, yes, I know. I, I know that I did what I could. And then as soon as you're out of the crisis, that just, boom, all of the dust comes back. <laughs> and it's like, oh, 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 now I have to live the rest of my life as the woman who had the late-term abortion. This is not true for everyone, but for me, like, I do believe I killed my daughter. Like, I I also believe it was the right thing to do, and I don't accept the word murder for it, but, like, the closest word I have is euthanasia, and I have to live the rest of my life as a mother who killed her daughter in an act of euthanasia. Oh, this is heavy. This is really hard. And that's when the outside voices just, just deaden the experience. It was really hard. I lost Laurel in an election year. 2012 was an election year. It has gotten so much worse since then that I just want to bow to everyone who lost a baby this way in 2016 and in 2020. But election years are terrible for us terrible for my community. We get used as a wedge in later abortion in particular, third trimester abortion, politicians who do not care at all 
about it. We'll use it as a wedge to wrap up anger and feelings. So we are literally being used as the scapegoat to mobilize an entire movement. And it hurts. It's awful. It's awful. And this is a, a, a place in our world, in our country, where domestic terrorism is really alive. And I just want everyone to know that. <laughs> And to know that Roe v. Wade being overturned will probably embolden some really awful things to start happening again. During the time of my activism over the last 10 years, there's been this sense that it's like, okay, if you're a patient, but if you're a doctor, you're in the crosshairs. That is the product of a lot of very political polling that has said, oh, people don't actually like it when we go after patients. They think it's actually like, not very nice. So we're not going to do that. We're just going to go after providers. So there's been a protection there, but I don't think it's going to remain. I think that the terrorist side of things is going to get more emboldened and it's going to get more dangerous. Unfortunately, I hate saying that, but it's, it's the way I see it happening. Yeah, I agree. The thing is, this is a medical decision and that should be between you and your doctors. And the doctors know the medical side of things. They know what's going on with you. They have the technology. And a lot of people, politicians, people that are, you know, anti-choice, they they don't know. They don't know the medical side of things. They don't know what goes on. They don't know the situation. There's just a, a very big lack of education, which is why I'm so thankful you're here today to educate us, because I think that we don't talk about miscarriages and abortions enough. Even I saw in a video recently that it really just, it was just such an eye opener how women are taught. And, you know, I, I don't have kids, but I've had a lot of friends that have had kids and something that's so common is that you're taught. And even I've been taught this, even not having kids, I I've known this is you don't share that you're pregnant until the three month point, because it's so common to have a miscarriage in those months. So we're already taught to be quiet about that, keep it a secret and almost be ashamed of it where, so it's something that not a lot of people talk about or understand, but miscarriage is very common. I've had several friends that have had miscarriages and we just don't talk about it. And I think that really ties into the misunderstanding, the lack of education and the shame of it, because a lot of people politicians, I've heard politicians blame women for their miscarriage. They're trying to criminalize miscarriages. It's just, there's such a lack of understanding and these decisions really need to be left to the medical professionals who have that understanding and that education. Yes, I absolutely agree. You know, as someone who's had a bunch of miscarriages and also an abortion, <laughs> one of my miscarriages wouldn't leave my body. So I got a dilation and evacuation, which is the exact procedure of what they call surgical abortion, which is sort of a misnomer because it's not, they don't cut you. So it's not a surgery, but it's the procedure in which they evacuate the uterus with this tool. And it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Because of that, in a lot of states, they will write the law to really target abortion based on the presence or absence of a heartbeat of the, of the embryo. It's a dangerous game. It's a dangerous game. First of all, that's cruel and awful. And we, we deserve the kind of autonomy by which we can make decisions about when we do and don't use our bodies to build life for nine months and bring it into the world. That should be a given. It's not though. A lot of people <laughs> will empathize more 
with the spontaneous loss, they're not safe. If you really want to punish abortion patients, but not miscarriage patients, unfortunately, it's very gray. It's a very gray world. As soon as you leave there a big open door to punish abortion patients, you're also leaving a big open door to punish women who are having miscarriages as well. I don't think we should be punishing any of them. I think that we're all worthy of decent medical care and dignity in our culture. Some of the laws they make are things about like the remains. And you can tell from my story how much I value receiving the remains of my child. That was very meaningful to me. It's not something I think should be put into law because a lot of these laws trying to basically distinguish between spontaneous loss and loss by choice, they punish women who would uh, dispose of fetal remains. I was in shock when I saw my baby, right? And when I had my miscarriages, there was one miscarriage where I passed some tissue into the toilet. And I think that a lot of embryos and fetuses get flushed down the toilet just because like you're often on the toilet when you're having a miscarriage. And to make that a punishable offense, oh, that is so dangerous. That is so dangerous. It is such a normal human experience, even if it is macabre, even if it is dark, it is a very common human experience to have a miscarriage and pass fetal tissue into the toilet. And then you're in this moment of panic, what do I do? Well. I reached my hand into the toilet and grabbed it. Some people will just flush the flusher. It does not matter. One is not better than the other. It's just like, why would you make laws around that, around that intimate moment? It doesn't make any sense. Exactly. And like you said, this is a human experience. It's a very common experience. And these laws are inhumane. They just, they're cruel and they're very traumatic for an already traumatic experience. And just the amount of grief that you had during this experience, it just, it just makes it so much worse. And I think these laws damage that grieving process. And it is a grieving process for a lot of people. Some it's not, some it's a relief and, you know, and I, I think you did the kindest thing you could for your daughter. And we talk about euthanasia with pets. There's the dying with dignity laws that, you know, I disagree that th those are limited to dying with dignity laws should be available in every state, but they're not. I read a story from years ago that a woman had to move to Ohio she had a terminal mm -hmm. illness. She had to move to Ohio to be able to, you know, take her own life. And it was going to be a very horrific end to her life. We need that autonomy. We need to make those decisions because nobody knows what's right for us better than ourselves and our partners and our doctors. And for strangers to be making these decisions is, is not okay. It's completely inhumane. And, and then the, the whole price thing too, how you said, that it was $25,000. Who has $25,000 lay laying around? <laughs> not a lot of people. <laughs> not a lot of people. It's outrageous. Right? Yes. Not a lot of people even have that kind of family savings that, that I had, right? right. Like, this is a place of immense privilege that I was able to rally that cash over a weekend, right? That's immense privilege. And I'm grateful for it every single day. But if you look at the economics of our country, Many people don't have a robust retirement. Many people do not have the kind of family support where they could get a loan quickly. Uh, a lot of people don't even have the credit to get a loan, even if they might have more days than I had to try to arrange it. 
it's scary. It's scary. And as soon as Roe v. Wade was passed, the Hyde Amendment was also passed. So people might not know this, but they're always like, I don't want my tax dollars spent on abortion. Well, they've never been because the Hyde Amendment says no to that, which means in my support group, the women who are in the service, the women who are in the military and have needed medically necessary abortions were not able to get it covered. I know women who had to leave bases and go out into cultures where they didn't speak the language into hospitals to have abortions because they didn't even think that even if she paid for it out of pocket, they said like, oh, well, like the beds in the hospital on base are paid for by taxpayer money. So you can't get your abortion here. So like, it's been bad for a long time, but it just got a lot worse recently, like a lot worse. Oh, sorry. I'm going off on a tangent. No, no, that's okay. I think that's important to know too, that these are, these are people's stories that they have to live through, that they have to go through because of these laws that have no idea what what's going on. And I did want to touch on, um, you know, you said in between those few days that you got the diagnosis, you had to travel, you traveled back, you didn't tell anybody. So was that because you were just in that crisis mode? Or were you afraid of those judgments and shame? And can you also share what happened once you did start telling family and friends, because I, you know, being your second baby, I know a lot of people um, have different, you know, not everybody does the gender reveals or baby showers, but I assume everybody knew you were pregnant. So can you share that as well? Absolutely. So yes, I didn't share upfront because of that knowing, like the same reason that I, it stopped me in my tracks when she said she couldn't send me to Kansas was like, oh, oh, people are going to have judgments on this. And I have to be really careful what I say and to whom. And I even had the self-awareness to know that I couldn't really even trust my doctors, right? Like I could, it turned out they were trustworthy. If you are a woman in Texas right now, please don't tell your doctor you're considering a choice. Don't do it. Don't do it. Your doctor is the most likely person to turn you in. Second, most likely is family. It's awful. It's an awful world we're living in. So if you're in a place where it's illegal, you really need to speak in code and you need to call out of state and speak to people who can legally consult you on this and who won't be you know, sued or arrested if they consult you on this. I had that awareness that I was stuck in a cultural bind and I didn't tell my friends because I was worried about their judgment. I just felt like I had been through so much if I lost my support network if my community fell apart around me and just let me fall through the net, I didn't know what I would do. I I just didn't even know how I would survive. So I said nothing to preserve my holding. And then I felt deeply guilty about that. And this is the shame spiral. There was, shame was a very present emotion once the dust settled, was just like, okay, do I owe everyone an explanation? The answer is no, I owe nobody an explanation. But there was part of me that just wanted to like regurgitate the story because I felt like because I had made this choice, everybody needed to know so they could judge me. That's not true, but it's a story that was going on in my mind. I did tell my friend pretty quickly, the, the birthday friend, I did tell her within weeks And you know what? She was so wonderful. She was so wonderful. I really didn't know what she would do or say because it doesn't matter how much you believe (laughs) that abortion is a a right. Like we're talking, you know, this is a baby. This is not a tiny embryo. This is a baby. And I just didn't know what she would think, but she just, she loved me the way a friend should. And that was enough. 
I came out little by little, like inner circle first, and then more people and more people. In the meantime, of course, you're right. Everybody in my world knew I was pregnant and I wasn't anymore. I sent an email to literally every person I could think of that I had their email, work friends, people from my old workplace, like anyone I had the email of, people from church, like people who are neighbors. I just blasted my entire network with an email that explained that our baby was stillborn, that she had brain anomalies. I probably said something stupid, like we're doing well considering, which like, uh, that was a stupid thing to say. You're not doing well. <laughs> we're deeply grieving parents, but we're alive, you know, <laughs> would have been a little better. But I just sent that to, to have everyone understand and what her name was so they would know. And we received a lot of love and a lot of flowers, a lot of cards. And I just remember feeling a guilt that they didn't know. Would they still support me if they knew? In my world, the answer is yes. As I have come out and come out and come out, all I've received is another round of support, like more support in my coming out. Eventually, I posted in my blog, which was not widely read, but a, a few hundred people that I knew read it. And then eventually I started story sharing with the media and posting about that on my Facebook. And now if you Google my name, abortion's what comes up. So now everybody knows about this. Oh, and it was very healing to me to have my people show up for me and then show up for me again. That's not a guarantee. It doesn't happen for everyone that way, but it's what we all deserve. And you know, if you're listening to this and wanna know how to show up for a friend, just love them. Just, I love you. You don't have to know what to say. There's nothing to say. Just, I love you so much. I'm glad that you're still here. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I'm so, I'm so glad that you received so much love and support from the people in your life. It's so sad that a lot of people don't, and that you even had to question that, you know, and you didn't share your story right away just because you didn't know for sure how people would react, even one of your closest friends. And that's, that's really a tragedy that people even have to wonder how are the people in my life going to react? Am I going to get, you know, shame going to be placed on me? Am I going to get all these judgments? And, and like you said, am I, am I going to be in danger from sharing my story from the people around me, which is, you know, shouldn't be the case. So Kate, I just thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story. It's such an important one. I hope you keep sharing it. Can you tell everyone where they can find you, your blog and everything? Absolutely. I have a blog at my coaching website, which is www.nightbloomcoaching, N-I-G-H-T-B-L-O-O-M-C-O-A-C-H-I-N-G.com, nightbloomcoaching.com. I love to offer support to bereaved parents. I love to offer support to anyone who's got some shadow world stuff going on. It's an initiation. And I, <laughs> I live in such a way that I would never say like, oh, I'm so glad this happened so I could live such a rich full life. But I will say, I accept the gifts of this terrible experience. And one of the gifts is to be able to offer holding to others who are going through it. Oh, I'm sure that's so appreciated, especially in a time like now where people don't know where or who they could turn to in their lives. That's so, so important, such an important space two holes for people. So I think that your work is so important. And can you leave us with any last words of what you wish people understood about abortion? I wish that people understood that abortion is the other side of the coin of bringing life into the world. So that if you have a womb, you have this incredible power to create life, 
in your body. It's like magic. It's like this incredible gift. And there's no life created without death. And so as hard as it can be to accept that we create life, we also have to accept that we create death. I used to look around and say, you know, I was having a hard time at preschool because all these babies were around me. And I used to comfort myself with like, we're not so different. Someday your baby too will die. And that's a very dark thing to think, but it is the truth. And what I wanna leave the world with is a deeper trust in women as the holders of the wombs in our bodies. Our wombs are us, they are our bodies. This power was given to us by nature, by God, whatever your belief, it was given to us and we hold it justly. And so if you want to glorify our ability to create life, there also has to be a deep reverence for our ability to choose not to create life, whether like me, you see that as a death or not. That's what I wish to leave, leave the world with. Thank you for that, Kate. That's so powerful. Everyone, I'm going to leave Kate's links in the show notes. Please go check her out. Kate, thank you so much for being here. I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. Thank you so much, Desiree. Oh, that was such a powerful story. I was getting so emotional and choked up. I was trying to hold back my tears. Kate's story is so emotional and so powerful. And sadly, it's going to become a lot more common. If you haven't guessed, I am very strongly pro-choice and this is exactly why. I think that each story is so individual and these decisions need to be left up to the woman and her partner, her family, and between her and her doctor. I think that abortion is an umbrella term and there's so many different stories. There's so many different situations. Miscarriages are spontaneous abortions. If you Google miscarriage, spontaneous abortion comes up so abortion I think is a term in of itself that we need to shift away from because it's just an umbrella term for all of these different situations and stories and these stories are individual these stories are people and when we make laws limiting the choices of these individuals it causes a lot of grief it causes a lot of trauma and it causes a lot of unnecessary harm I hope that you learned a lot from Kate's story today. Her story is a powerful one and I thank her for coming on to share it and I appreciate being educated on this topic as well. I think we could all use a lot more education on this topic. We're not taught about abortion. We're not taught about miscarriage. The only time that we speak about these things is when it comes to laws limiting them and that needs to change and that's why I had Kate on here today. Thank you so much for listening to Kate's story. I hope that this episode and her story impacted you as much as it impacted me. If you want to check out Kate, her links are in the show notes. I will talk to you next week.